You're listening to the How to Be an Author in Australia podcast. This is a podcast for writers who would like to become published authors. We're going to take you behind the scenes in the book industry from festival organisers, reviewers, magazine editors and sales reps, and from creative writing teachers and journalists to booksellers and book designers and everyone in between. We promise we'll be talking to the people who love books just about as much as we do, and we know you do too. I'm Claire Miller, and this is my co-host, Georgia Richter. Hi, Claire. And later, we'll be joined by the comma chameleon who will hit us with a quiz from the editing world. So, Georgia, hello. How are you? I'm well, Claire. Thank you. Georgia, have you had your professional author shots done for How to Be an Author yet? I have been marched up and down our street a lot outside Fremantle Press with Tiffany holding a camera and placing me in front of various coloured walls for effect. And I have chosen a range of outfits that go with the jacket of my book, but I haven't actually had my formal professional headshots done yet. Is a professional author shot, is that something that every author should get done? Absolutely. And several, not just one. I, I mean, I would love to have about 20 for each author, but um, that's not always possible from a finances perspective. But you certainly should go out and get a number of shots in different outfits, in different settings. Don't make them too formal. You, we don't want the headshot of the author that's put up against a green screen or a white wall. We want things that actually um, show your personality, maybe show something about your book. So, for instance, Emma Young, who we're working with at the moment, is going to get some shots of her outside local bookstores. She's going to get some shots in front of books and things like that because it fits in with the last bookshop. So no pressure. So the author needs to think about what is the tone of my book and what sort of mood do I want to convey through these shots, but also to give you a range that you can use them in different scenarios. Is that That's right? That's right. It's always helpful if I have a number of shots to use because I can give those out to different media outlets. So you're highlighting a different aspect of yourself. You're highlighting a different aspect of your book. You're helping become more competitive in terms of getting publicity because a media outlet doesn't like to be doing exactly the same thing as every other media outlet. So that can be really, really useful. We can reuse them in social media as well and we'll often get extra shots of authors. So every time an author comes into our office, be warned, you will be photographed, you'll often be videoed as well because social media is a giant um, machine that loves to be fed constantly and the more that we have, the better. And I've also noticed that when any dog enters our office that it is also made to pose for a photograph for at the dog park. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we love a good dog shot. Um, we haven't yet got a good cat shot. So just putting it out there. If anyone would like to bring their cat in to pose with a Fremantle Press book, we would be very happy to accommodate that. Perhaps bring them in on a little lead, um, bring the whiskers along so that we can make sure that hopefully they they pose the way we want them to. Is this to promote at the dog park? Uh, yes, why not? <laughs> to promote any book. I think a, I think a cat and a book would be a, a very effective promotional tool. We all know that people love cats on social media, so why not? So I'm putting it out there. Everybody, 
Um, in fact, if you own cats, you're probably more likely to go up the um, the list in terms of the likelihood of you being published. It's one of the questions on our form. Do you own a cat? So are there some do's and don'ts of author shooting? Yeah, look, I think if you have, as I said, some different outfits, but also if you are somebody that prefers to see yourself in makeup, looking very polished in your shots and make sure that you've done that. If that's not really a part of your author brand, then that's that's okay. But, you know, think about how you want to be perceived. Think about things like if you have an off-the-shoulder top, you don't necessarily want to be taken, your photo taken as a portrait. You want to have a full body shot because otherwise it looks like you're half naked. And think about trying to look comfortable. Like people who get their photo taken don't do just one shot or two shots. Hundreds of shots get taken. So think about, you know, moving around, standing to one side and looking at the camera, looking down the barrel of the camera, looking off to the distance, leaning, not leaning, sitting, standing. Like try a whole bunch of different things until you get a shot that you feel reflects you and also ask the photographer to show you some of those shots as well. And if you're not happy, just keep going until you get the kinds of shots that you're happy with. Is there a way to hold a book in a photograph, (laughs) as in your own book? Absolutely. Like you can't cover the cover. So if your name's not readable or the name of your book's not readable, then that's not actually going to work. But for publicity shots, you wouldn't get a lot of shots with your book cover in there because the book cover usually appears separately um, and some media outlets actually have a policy where they don't want the book shown. So by all means, get a couple of shots of you with your book, but that's not the priority. And so you might be having that kind of photograph more in social media, say, of you with your book. What What's the range or the spectrum of social media images because I'm thinking shot after shot of the author is not the most dynamic way to go? Well, people respond to pictures of people. So it's not terrible to have a lot of pictures of yourself with your book or with, with and without your book. Interspersed by cats. Interspersed with cats and dogs. Um, No, not really. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, every fourth or fifth photo, there's no reason why it couldn't be a portrait of yourself or a portrait of someone else holding your book. You could do pictures of your book out in the wild at bookstores and things like that. It's got to be something that's sort of natural and maybe just mix it up a little bit. Um, You might do some shots of an event that you go to. You might do a shot of um, catching up with your publisher like there's all sorts of things that you can do and I think it's about it's about variety but it's also about consistency in the sense that it has to be true to you and authentic to you. So there's no point getting Hugh Jackman to hold your book if it's, you know, not not relevant or not authentic to you and you don't even like Hugh Jackman anyway. I think Hugh Jackman would always be a, a really, I know, that is a really bad example because example. who wouldn't want Hugh Jackman to hold their book? I want Hugh Jackman to hold my book. Yeah, but if you hate gerbils as I do then perhaps you don't want to gerbil with your book so does a photo need a story behind it I think you as an author should use your storytelling ability in all your social media posts and think about the where what when how and um, even if it's a couple of lines try and make it interesting try and make it true to you and try and make it a bit of a story because that's why you're getting published in the first place so you should exploit all of your talents when I think about um, authors and social media that 
that stick in my mind and things that stand out. I think of, say, Natasha Lester who will photograph beautiful dresses or give us a little snippet of what she's been researching. That That's one that comes to mind. Or Moira Court who will photograph art found in nature or things that she's constructed and so it's just an image of something but it very much goes to who that author is and what the story around them and their books are. Yeah, and Moira goes one step further because her audience is children because she's working in the picture book realm. And so what Moira does really well is she works with her daughter, Winnie, who is a kind of budding artist. And without taking photos of Winnie necessarily or having her in the shots, she'll have Winnie's artwork there. And so she's making that connection between her own artwork, her book and the audience. And she's doing that in a very respectful way and a way that's very creative as well. So all those elements go into author brand, don't they, and this sense of this is what this author is about. Initially, as an author, I've needed to fill in a contributor information form for marketing, which is telling you everything I possibly can about the book, about the contents, about its keywords, about how I would describe it, about my connections with people in the media and booksellers and so forth, because you are going to take that information from me and build that into a marketing program. And sometime after that, an advance information sheet is produced by marketing, which may absorb some of that, but is distributed to the people who are going to sell the book in to bookshops and other outlets and also to reviewers and people who may write about the book, journalists or so forth, in advance of the book appearing in the stores. So that's all happening in the background. And um, how far ahead of time is that material going to... Six be? months ahead of time. So we may not have even met the author at that time, which is why filling in the form is really, really important to us. But why don't we meet Jane and Gavin from Penguin Random House and get them to explain it a bit more first. Great idea. Hello, my name is Brendan Ritchie, author of Carousel and Beyond Carousel, and also a contributor to the new book, How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia. My best advice for aspiring writers is to find ideas and focus on ideas that keep you returning to the desk um, in front of your work as much as possible. So anything with some urgency, um, some questions that require exploration and answering, um, anything that will tug at you to re return to the work over and over again for the many uh, days, weeks and months that are required in order to finish a long project. Um, if you can do that, I think you're half a chance. Best of luck. We are very pleased to have Jane Parkhill and Gavin Burbage of Penguin Random House with us today. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Hi. So can you start by telling us what each of you do at Penguin Random House? Let's start with Jane. I'm known as a sales account manager and what that entails is looking after our accounts, booksellers, bookshops. We sell them the new release fiction and 
we're at their beck and call for everything. <laughs> and Gavin, apart from being in different states, are you doing the same thing as Jane or something slightly different? Fairly similar, I think. We're the human face of the publisher. And as Jane said, we're the first port of call, which means we get the good and the bad, of course. <laughs> Yes, and the wins and the losses all come to us. Both of us do some key account work as well, looking after, um, I mean, Jane looks after you as an agency, Fremantle, and uh, I look after Colin's um, bookshop chain as well. But yeah, on the whole, it's it's a fairly similar similar gig that we have, yes. And Gav, what was your journey to the role of account manager? I was working, I was managing a bookshop in the city, in Melbourne, a technical bookshop actually, so lots of non-fiction um, wheels, wings, killing things and um, and engineering books and so on. And the Penguin list, as it was, Penguin at the time before the merger was the most interesting and diverse ones of, of, all, of all the publishers that I used to see and buy from. When the job became vacant at Penguin, I just had to go for it because I just wanted a you know, broader range of books to play with. So here I am. And Jane, you've got a degree in literature, haven't you? So what was your journey? I actually wanted to be an editor, but my daughter started high school and I had to work. Um, so I did lots of hospitality, tourism. I worked in a bookshop as well, a busy Dimmick store here in Perth. And I was manager, buyer, so I knew my Penguin rep. And when a vacancy came up with Penguin at the time, it seems to be a natural progression for people that love books and work in bookstores. So mm. that's um, where I am now, 13 years later. I think most people will recognise Penguin Random House as a publisher, but you're also a distributor. Can you explain to our listeners who are authors what that means? Originally, it was just Penguin. Penguin was based in Ringwood in, in Melbourne, on the outskirts of Melbourne. And the warehouse was the warehouse and the publishing house and everyone was all, all in one, one place. But they did need to join the new century or the new decade and opened up United Book Distribution, UBD. Um, so as a warehouse, of course, it will always run more efficiently with the more books and, and units that have been put through. People might have been probably wary of, of having their books coming out of a, a warehouse with the name of Penguin, but UBD, of course, is a separate entity. So... Um, we also distribute for various other publishers as well as our own books. And that warehouse is absolutely enormous, isn't it? I've driven past on the freeway. It seems to go for... Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the scene out of the end of Red's The Lost Ark where they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant into the distance. You know, that's what it looks like when you go in there. It's massive, absolutely massive. Jane, could you tell us about the different kinds of accounts that Penguin Random House services because you don't just sell to booksellers, right? In my role as an account manager here in WA, I sell to the booksellers, the bookshops. We also have library suppliers, uh, educational suppliers as well that we call on and show them the new release stock. As a large publisher, we do have different outlets for the books which are sold into big W's, other DDS's, Booktopia. Our books are filling spots everywhere. How often do you see your accounts? Some of the accounts I just sell Random House to and some I sell Penguin and Random House to and so we can do two visits to them. Um, but it's we, we work on a monthly cycle basically because we, do, we sell new releases to them once a month, three months in advance. And Gavin, what does a, a day in the life of Gavin Burbage as a sales account manager look like? Uh, emails while having breakfast, 
in the time of COVID, it's been straight onto the computer and their meetings. Otherwise, it would be driving to see a bookshop and then doing a grand loop around Melbourne. Um, so your last call is close at home. Um, and then finish off with some emails and then it's time for bed. Yeah, talking to bookshops all day, essentially. Uh, do you pitch to the shop owner themselves or who are you pitching to? It depends on the store. Uh, sometimes the manager does the buying. Others, Other stores have separate buyers for their stores. And, of course, some have many stores that they own, which it could either have a single buyer for buying for all of them or a group of buyers at the same time. So, it, it yeah, it's, it's bookshop by bookshop, depends. And, Jane, what does a sell-in consist of? We have anywhere upwards of 300 books a month that are new releases and we sit down with our bookseller. It's always nice to buy them a coffee and we go through the lists. We have um, on-screen presentations that we show them so they can see covers. Covers are hugely important to booksellers and you tell them everything you learn about a book, all the information you know about every single book, you distill down into 10 seconds and tell your bookseller that they really need the book. It's basically a nice conversation about books with your bookseller. You know, this is the nerd in me coming up, but I worked out that it averaged at 437 books a month. There you go. Yeah. Um, and that's the actual ones that are released in Australia as opposed to indent titles, which were deemed not suitable for market, which we have access to, but but didn't bring into the warehouse or only buy in if a bookseller wants them and they'd be easily that amount again that aren't sold normally. Have either of you book nerds worked out how many other sales reps there are selling in the same number of titles? Not many publishers have a list as large as ours. So there, there are a few other reps out there, of course. Most of the publishers have at least one one or two. The lists are probably larger at Penguin Random House than anyone else. But it could conceivably be a thousand books a month that a bookseller has to look at. Oh, more, more, more than oh, that. easily. I would say yes. several. I would say yeah. several thousand. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So very competitive. Do you find that the booksellers take every book on your list? No, oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, absolutely. I mean, because it's sales and returns management at the same time. Jane and I could push a huge range of books to a bookseller, but then we'd know that the bulk of those would be returned because they're not suitable to their market or their audience or whichever type of bookshop it is. And for instance, I see um, a bookshop called Books for Cooks, and that is what they sell, cookbooks, and nothing else. So, you know, unless the fiction is hugely food-related, they're not going to be taking anything else. You really have to know your demographic for each store. You have to walk in there and you have to be in the shoes of that particular buyer and know what they want to sell so mm. and is that something an author should be doing as well thinking about which of the book sellers are the most appropriate outlets for their book yes always uh after they've written a book of course unless you're being truly truly mercenary i don't know if people write a book with a market in mind well i hope hope a lot of people don't but if you've written a book yes then consider it from that point is there anything you would say that authors can do to help sales reps make their books stand out from the competition authors need to really throw themselves into publicity do lots of publicity, listening, listen to their publicist and their marketing people at their publisher. It's important too that they have an online presence. They should be active on social media. 
and be willing to do events and talk to people, talk to their readers and get out there in there and um, tell them how good their book is. Um, trust the publisher too on the cover that they're going to put out there because they know what's going to sell, what works, so usually. <laughs> are you consulted in relation to covers that publishers are thinking about? Well, I love getting covers from you guys at Fremantle because it's a great process to have a look at um, what's going to be on the shelf because we see so many books, we know what's out there in the bookshops and what does work and what definitely doesn't work and what makes a book look a particular way, whether it's non-fiction or fiction, but within those genres of fiction as well, how it looks. So it's great to have input into that. Um, harking back to what authors can do is, is, is go and see your bookshop and introduce yourself. Um, and, I mean, the, the worst thing an author can do is wander into a bookshop and ask if they stock their book without actually introducing themselves first. I mean, it'll put a, put a bookseller or buyer offside immediately. It's quite rude um, as well because it is, it's a little bit devious and it, it normally will backfire. The same as people's family. Um, of course, the family is going to be excited and, and proud of an author having published a book. But if, you, if, if, if their mum wanders in pretending to be the public, it can go very badly very quickly. Generally, booksellers are, are really happy to meet authors and, and will go out of their way to stock their book if they haven't already. Um, yeah, so so meet your local bookshops, have a chat to them, offer yourself up for any event you can. Um, so I might be, not be very successful in terms of book sales, but but any publicity is good publicity, I think. An author needs to know how to present their book themselves in a really interesting way and really talk well about it and bring people in and, and enjoy that and um, make people want to buy it and want to read it because that's the whole aim of it. Yeah. Um, so tell us about the competition for Space on Shelves and how it works. Like, so you have a successful selling, you get tons of books out there, they're all on the shelves everywhere in bookstores. Does that mean that's it? Um, so a book will be out there. It might be Pride of Space. It may sell just on the cover alone. It may sell because the bookshop and the booksellers have read it and love the book and are hand-selling it furiously. It may sell because of media that the author's done. And it's lifespan on a shelf, especially lifespan on front of shelf or front table or window, will depend on its success in those first few weeks. So when is the key time frame, Jane, you'd say an author needs to be around for the sale of their book? The first couple of weeks for sure. And then moving on, making themselves available for those first three months. Yep. Or longer. Yes, as long as they can. Mm. As long really, as they can, um, that's true. I, I always wonder whether whether an author has to spend more time selling the book after writing it than the actual actual writing as well. Um, it is, it, you know, some books do take off immediately, of course, and are hugely successful without with an anonymous author or an unknown author and so on, but, but that's more the exception than the rule. Mm. So do you think for new and emerging authors it's a bit of a slow burn for sales or can one book kill your career if it doesn't go well? I think with the first book and with a debut, I mean, book buyers, booksellers, they definitely want debuts. They want new authors, but it's a risk. They don't know how this book's going to work. So it's important to have them to read it if they can, if we believe in this book, and then... They will push it, like Gav said, about hand-selling. Well, let's talk about hand-selling. What does hand-selling actually mean? So we talk about it a lot, but if you're a new author and you've never heard the term, what would you call hand-selling? 
when someone goes into a bookshop and says, I'm looking for a nice fiction read and the the um, people on the shop floor, the booksellers, have read this particular author's book and loved it and they'll take them straight to it. This is this is the book you want. So good booksellers can sell you a book that you don't even want. Don't even want or never consider. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> As well. But, but some booksellers can hand sell literally 1,000 units of a book a year. In, in the bigger bookshops. So it does make a difference. If you've got some people championing your book, yeah, you can do very well out of it. Gavin, you work with Collins, and I know Collins has, um, they do hand selling, but they also do a lot of selling through their catalogues. Can you explain yeah. to authors, how does their book get into a catalogue? Uh, Collins works on a, a system where a certain number of books from each publisher are chosen as a group buy. They're given to the, the bookshops at a higher rate of discount and a higher number of purchased. And those ones are generally guaranteed to be in the catalogue. Collins, for instance, put out three catalogues a year. The titles that are included are decided at, at head office level, um, and then there'll be negotiation on other ones to get them included. I've got a question for each of you. Now that you both know what you know about selling in books, would that affect the kind of book that you yourself wrote with a view to its success? I, I suspect anything I wrote would be hugely unsuccessful or be so niche that the numbers would be small. I mean, there's a couple of a couple of authors who've decided to write mass market, best-selling, Matthew Riley-esque style, you know, almost big dumb book, and they failed terribly at it as well. Um, it, so even even those who've tried very hard to break into a genre have, 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 haven't succeeded. Um, so I'd hope you'd rather write, rather write something that, that I wanted to write about rather than go for um, monetary monetary gain, I think, would be the thing. But uh, I think the cynicism might show through a little bit. Jane, what about you? Selling books, um, if I had any ideas of writing one when I was at uni, I certainly don't now. <laughs> it's hard work and you have to be prepared for that hard work. And everyone has a story within them, I'm sure, or more than one. Um, but it's a you know, it's not just that creative process. But, um, yeah, if I was going to write one, it would just be something that I wanted to write. You couldn't do it to a formula. It could be a very long slog and it's not an instant way to wealth and fortune. And how many books do you guys read a year as sales reps? I'd probably read 50. That's full books that I'd read. And then we read a lot of chapters of books, beginnings of chapters and, and things like that to get a feel for them so we can sell them as well. I'd barely read 100 a year now um, since having children. I used to average about one a day, um, but that's that's been cut back <laughs> somewhat with other duties. If you were a book, what kind of a book would you be? Mm. Claire, let me put that to you first. I'd be um, a non-fiction book featuring a middle-aged person having a breakdown and just chucking everything in and going off on a bicycle or something in bad bad lycra outfits. That would be me. I'd read that. The, 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 the lady equivalent of mammal, middle-aged. Middle-aged, yeah, person in lycra. Yes. What about you, Gavin? What would you be? Um, I would definitely have to be a hardcover and... Um, 
comedy nonfiction. I think. I think. What am I? I mean, one of my favourite authors is you know the, Tim Moore, the the travel writer, who manages to get that wonderful mix of reality and and the absurd in his travel works. Yeah, I do love that sort of thing. And I would probably be. Um, a guidebook on how to save the environment because <laughs> that's what I'm so passionate about. <laughs> oh, lovely. You've just said that we're not worthy, basically. You know, you've just <laughs> shamed us all there, Jane. <laughs> I believe in world peace. <laughs> yes. yeah. and tougher, tougher sentences for parole violators. It's very aspirational. I like it. What about you, Georgia? Mm. What would I be? I think I'd be a work of literary fiction. I think I'd be a story about a passive aggressive librarian. <laughs> I don't think well, I'd have a big readership. <laughs> I don't think I'd have a big readership. And and is that under is that in the horror genre or um, true crime or I, I think the I think <laughs> passive aggressive librarians. I think the fan fiction about my literary fiction would be in the horror genre. <laughs> Yeah. A, a sweeping roller coaster of a novel where a where a librarian starts murdering people who damage books in libraries. Yeah, I think it'll catch on. That's a good pitch. I'd yeah. I'd take that in my I'd bookshop. Publish that book. I'd read that book. I'd read that book. Very nice. Um, so, is there anything else you'd like to share with the authors out there that are listening today about your jobs and making your job? easier or helping them be more successful talk to as many people as you can and if you can if you can get to talk to the sales team at your publisher it will really help selling your book because you should know your book better than anyone of course talk to reading groups talk to libraries do as many events as you can and um, yeah just don't be shy keep up your good work keep trying and we just need you all to write new stories for us because uh, books are so important. That was Jane Parkhill and Gavin Burbage of Penguin Random House. It's time for the comic chameleon, Armel Davies, to put us through our editorial paces. She actually shot over to the eastern states. I think she thought that the punctuation was going to be greener on the other side. Before she left, she made a bit of an effort to come up with one more dastardly quiz for us. I thought it was a little bit unfair because she expected us to remember 12 months ago. I think it was quite corona appropriate, actually. Today, I wanted to talk about the Macquarie Dictionary's Word of the Year which is always a very exciting announcement for language nerds all over the world, but probably mostly in Australia. The 2020 word of the year was obviously dominated by coronavirus-related words, so much so that they've added a separate category just for COVID words. So that means that we're actually going to have two questions today. So I think that means that this will be a tiebreaker as well. Don't mention the war, Amel. Sensitive subject. <laughs> Very right. sensitive subject. Moving on. Which of these shortlisted words was the 2020 word of the year in the general category first? So our options are A, pyrocumulonimbus, which is a cumulonimbus which forms above a source of intense heat, such as a bushfire, volcanic eruption, or the like. B, Karen, which is a derogatory term used predominantly to refer to a middle-class white woman, 
often of Generation X, who is regarded as having an entitled, condescending, and often racist attitude, or C, doom scrolling, a colloquial term, which is the practice of continuing to read news feeds online or on social media, despite the fact that the news is predominantly negative and often upsetting. Do you want to hear those again? No, they're too depressing. I'd prefer not to hear them again. This is a very, <laughs> very sad list, Macquarie. I mm. don't like this list. Do we sometimes um, have lists that are more uplifting and you think, whoa, that was a good year? But, yeah, it is very reflective of the events of the year, isn't it? And uh, you can see how these tie to 2020 events. Very much. Claire, I'm going to magnanimously let you have first go. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get this wrong. I just don't want to choose Karen because I don't want to give her any more air than she's already got. So I'm going to choose A, pyrocumulusness thingy. Pyrocumulus. Pyro, pyrocumulus. Pyro what? Pyrocumulonimbus. Pyrocumulonimbus. I'm choosing A, pyrocumulonimbus. Rolls off the tongue. Good Scrabble word. <laughs> if you could ever get that many letters together. I think I'm actually going with doom scrolling because I think that is maybe an action that covers the whole year. Whereas uh, the first one takes me back to the start of the year and, and the other the other Karen seems episodic. So I'm going with doom scrolling. Well, Georgia, you are correct. The word of the year is doom scrolling, which I actually think is a great word because as soon as you hear it, you know exactly what it means. And I think we are all guilty of it this year. Is it hyphenated? It is not. It is one word. Is there a subgenre called Trump scrolling? <laughs> I have no doubt. <laughs> I love the word. But it didn't make the short list. I love the word scrolling because it actually harks back to scrolls, which initially being made from uh, vellum or, or skin were rolled up and you, you you rolled up one end and unrolled the other to read them. And we've appropriated that word again in our digital world and we understand what it means, but we're again we're back rolling up and down with our reading. I imagine there was also some uh, doom scrolling going on in the Middle Ages too. The hilarious thing is that that wasn't even the coronavirus word list, so it's going to get bleaker, isn't it? Yeah. It is going to a bit, yes. Okay, we're bright. And I apologise for that. <laughs> All right, so which of the following was the COVID word of the year? A, Rona, a colloquial term for the coronavirus. Uh, B, Covidiot a person who refuses to follow health advice aimed at halting the spread of COVID-19 as by not social distancing, taking part in large gatherings, etc., as well as buying large amounts of perceived staples, especially toilet paper. And C, COVID normal, a way of living in which a community takes precautions against the transmission of COVID-19 prior to the availability of an effective vaccine as a natural part of day-to-day -day life. Um I don't really associate the Macquarie with slang so much, but I'm not that familiar with how they choose their words. But I'm actually going to go with Corona Normal. Was that what it was? A COVID Normal? COVID Normal, yeah. Yeah, I'm going with C. <laughs> ah, I, don't, I just realised none of the words in the Macquarie Dictionary are actually things I can say. Covidiot. Covidiot? Uh, well, actually, I don't think they had a pronunciation guide on there, but I assume it is Covidiot, yeah. I do really like the word Covidiot. I think it sums up 
a lot that we've seen over the past year in Australia? Well, this is unprecedented, but you're actually both incorrect. The word they chose was Rona. Rona, which is just a colloquial word for coronavirus and is a classic Australian abbreviation. Hmm. Yeah, we don't agree, Macquarie. So, Carmen, did you vote for any of these words yourself? There is actually a separate people's choice category, and I did indeed vote. And some of my favourites were quarantini, which is a very 2020 word and one that I love because it puts a positive spin on a bad situation. Sorry, is that a cocktail? Yes, that's a cocktail consumed in quarantine. I also loved uh, ISO, which is another Australian abbreviation, which is just economical and quite beautiful, I think. And I also loved scene, which is when you read someone's message. So it says that you've seen it, but you, another term for this is that you leave them on red. So you have seen something. So I'm going to ask both of you a question. Do you have Macquarie bugbears? Absolutely. We sure do. I think a great example is air conditioning versus Aircon versus air condition, which is treated differently in three different ways. So one is hyphenated, one is spaced, and one is a compound noun. And that sort of inconsistency is frustrating for an editor. Especially when you have two different versions that appear in the same sentence or the same paragraph. So the difference is very obvious. And we actually decided for our own style guide that we would just hyphenate all of them so we would have a blanket rule. So sometimes we divert from the Macquarie. But we we notice these things because when one is editing a book and you're at the stage where you're creating a style sheet for the book, so you're making a word list of all decisions made in relation to hyphenation, hyphenation and compound nouns and so forth, when you have these words listed side by side, that's when the inconsistencies arise. So Macquarie hasn't necessarily gone through that process itself to notice the words together. And are there words that are so common in our books that they end up on the big bad style sheet of style sheets, the overall company style sheet? Yeah, and air conditioning is one of them. But another one that comes up all the time, and in fact, it feels like it's in every single book that we publish, is ice cream. And it's funny that you think you'd have to look up a word like ice cream just to check. But it's one of those words that could be spelt three ways. Again, with a space, with a hyphen, or as a compound noun. And it is amazing, actually, how many characters will at some point eat ice cream in a book. I think to the extent where if ice cream doesn't appear in a book, we almost feel as if we should suggest to the author that it goes in. Yes, so it can be almost a sort of Fremantle Press Easter egg for our readers. Exactly. Exactly. It's funny that you said exactly because we have lots of issues in marketing where we make up words and then you guys have to make a style decision on it. I know exactly was one of them when we were playing with um, Chicken Saurus promotions for James Foley and we had E-G-G-X-A-C-T-L-Y and E-G-G-S-A and so on and so forth. So there's lots of those where we kind of create issues for you all by creating words from scratch. Chicken scratch. Yeah, and we have to 
Yeah. And we have to figure out some kind of logic for it. Otherwise we just like consistently keep going back and looking at it again and ending up with inconsistencies. Does the marketing department use the Macquarie, Claire? (laughs) (laughs) I do if I'm desperate, if there's no handy editor around. That sounds really bad. (laughs) (laughs) And then if neither of them are available, I think, oh, I'll have to remember my login for the Macquarie and look it up. Thanks, Comma. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the How to Be an Author podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss an episode. And to discuss anything raised on today's podcast, join us on the How to Be an Author in Australia Facebook group. It's a great place to chat with other writers who are starting out, along with many of the contributors from the book I've written with Deborah Hunn. How to Be an Author, The Business of Being a Writer in Australia is available from freemantlepress.com.au and at all good bookstores. See you next time. See you next time.